0: Wisconsin's afternoon news is on the air, broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee.
1: Here's John McCure. All right, the team is here. Sandy Max is here. So is Greg Matzik. Debbie Lazaga is on your roads. Adam Roberts is producing our show this afternoon. So about one o'clock this afternoon, I'm actually recording an interview. Uh, which we're going to play back for you in a couple minutes here, actually. And suddenly I hear scurrying about in our WTMJ newsroom. And I, I head in there, kind of my instinct. I just go in there, see what's going on. And it ends up that a partial parking structure collapse has happened at Bayshore. And nobody knows what that means. Are there cars underneath there? Are there people underneath there? We start to deploy our resources. We send a couple people down to the scene, get in touch with our partners at TMJ4 in the Business Journal, and start to spread out. I start making phone calls and blah, blah, blah. It was a scary moment, and it ends up that no one died in a very busy parking garage. WTMJ's Finn Askin is there at the scene right now, and he is live with us. Good afternoon, Finn
2: good afternoon john how are we doing
1: good so it was chaotic 1 one thirty. lots of rescuers lots of first responders lots of digging out what is the scene like down there at the parking structure now
2: yeah so things have really started to cool down here all of the fire engines that were here just an hour ago are all gone there's only one police squad car still here but now it even looks like the crews are starting to move out that were working inside of the garage But now it looks like they're starting to move in a bunch of industrial-grade heaters. The thought there is that instead of using bobcats uh, to try and get the snow out of there, it might be faster to just melt this gigantic pile of snow on the first floor. So that's what it looks like they're just moving those heaters in there right now. But everything else is pretty clear on the scene.
1: So what about other vehicles that are in there, Finn? We've been able to see aerial shots, which show there are clearly other cars in there with apparently no way to get out.
2: Right. Yeah, that, that's still the big issue here. Is there's still cars on the second and third floor that really have no way of getting out of there. Um, it looks like everything's pretty much cleared out of the first floor besides those cars that were actually hit by uh, the falling rubble. But, yeah, no, there's still cars stuck in there. And like I told you guys an hour ago, there's still people. I, I couldn't get in contact with the school that is located in Bayshore, but – there is the only entrance and exit into that school, into that college on the top floor, is from the parking garage. So our news partners at TMJ4 actually talked to a woman who said, yeah, I was driving to class, and if I would have gotten here two minutes later, I would have been hit by that rubble falling down. And she was lucky enough to not go into class and miss this huge uh, incident. But yes, very scary what could have happened today.
3: What are the plans to try and get those people who are in the school still out?
2: Right. Yeah, I I couldn't get any answers from the college, and right now there's still no word on if they're still up there, but that is the only possible exit and entrance. So I assume crews are still working to get things done up there, but I, I have gotten no word about it yet.
3: Such a so grateful that there haven't been any fatalities or injuries in this situation and what a creative solution to try to melt that snow, rather than like you say, getting the big industrial machines to try and dig that out.
2: Right. Very interesting. It looks like they have about five or six all loaded up on the ground, and it looks like they're starting to move them in there now. But yeah, all the bobcats were taken out, and it looks like they're just trying a new trying a new strategy because it is a large pile of snow in there.
1: WTMJ's Finn Askin at Bayshore. Thank you, Finn. Yep. Thank you all. Coming up after the break, the legacy of Tony Earle, Wisconsin governor who passed away today. TMJ4's Charles Benson is with us. All right, let's bring in Charles Benson. He is the chief political reporter at TMJ4. Charles, good afternoon. Thanks for being with us.
4: Great to be here, John.
1: Hey, Charles, I wanted to start by asking you, you and I have talked off and on about legacy and how it applies to different people. Wisconsin Governor Tony Earl was a one-term governor right before Tommy Thompson. What is Tony Earl's legacy?
4: You know, I think it is in a time period, you know, when you put it around that time period, he served from 1983 to 1987, so more than 40 years ago, he begins his career. Uh, I, I think people would say, He was a guy who governed at a time when there were some difficult challenges, as all governors can face. But he addressed those problems by trying to find the right solutions. Uh, I I talked to Tom Loftus, who was uh, the former Democratic Assembly Speaker, also ambassador to Norway. And, you know, he really was... Very fond of Tony Evers, called him his uh, soulmate at time, and just had great conversations with him. And he said, you know, today when we think of things like the rainy day fund in Wisconsin, he says that started under Governor Tony Earl because when Earl gets into office, he's facing a billion dollar deficit. Now, a billion dollars back in 1983 was a bigger chunk of the, uh, the state budget. So he had to take some, make some tough decisions. Uh, it may have ended up costing him the job because he only ends up in one term. And he gets defeated by Tommy Thompson, who also, though, today puts out a statement saying, we lost a giant who understood that to govern is a privilege that comes with burdens few will ever know. We owe a great debt to his life of public service. And
1: it seems that the environment and ecology and that sort of thing was very, very
4: important and also a big part of his history. Yeah, I, and Loftus called him the first environmental governor. You know, he does come out of the Department of Natural Resources, Gaylord Nelson, the first conservationist uh, governor. But I thought that was an interesting point because the environmental issue is still very much uh in its infancy at that time. And uh, so Loftus also said something that it seems like a bygone era. You know, at 5 o'clock at the end of the day, you, you, had it, you headed over to the governor's office, and there was occasional cocktails at times, you know, just to <laughs> kind of talk about things.
3: That's funny. And we, I think a lot of us remember Tommy Thompson's role as governor, certainly a big personality. And I get the impression that Governor Earl also had a big personality.
4: He and he was, you know, more methodic. Both are lawyers. uh, You know, so uh, Tony Earle's a lawyer uh, and as well as Tommy Thompson. The one story I remember uh, sort of encountering, because I'm just coming on as a cup reporter at that time, uh, Wisconsin had at that time, like a lot of states, I think our drinking age was 19. The federal government was on a lot of states to raise it to 21. And to do that, they said, if you don't, they're going to withhold federal highway money which was a big chunk of money and so uh earl at that time and some of his uh supporters they weren't they didn't like this idea that they were being forced to raise the age of 21 but they ended up doing that i want to switch gears while
1: we have you for a couple more minutes charles and ask you about the supreme court race the primary is over to move on what jumped out at you when you think about what happened on tuesday
4: I think what jumps out is uh, just how much uh, people are behind Judge Janet Protasevich. And I say that from the standpoint, you know, there were two liberal candidates, two conservative candidates. And it looks like on the conservative side, between former Justice Dan Kelly and Waukesha County Judge uh, Jennifer Doral, uh, you know, it, was, it seemed like a more competitive race by the numbers. But when you add up all the votes that Kelly gets, all the votes that Doral gets, Protosevich still garnered more votes in what turned out to be a fairly high number of people voting in a spring primary that does not normally attract that many voters. Then when you add in just the votes that uh, the Dane County judge, Everett Mitchell, gets, there were far more people motivated in this race based by how many people voted on the democratic, liberal leaning side. So that to me says they are already engaged in this April election. And I think it's also being seen right now. I believe that uh, Janet Judge Protasevich is already up on TV, waiting to see right now Then when Justice Kelly gets up on TV. I mean, it's really a sprint from here to April 4th. And, you know, next Tuesday is five weeks from Election Day. And I think this is going to be such a huge battle, such a huge amount of money. It won't just be those campaign commercials, but I think you'll see a lot sharper elbows and the messaging will be sharper. Sharper, as well, on what they think of each other. Charles, I read somewhere that this may end up being the most
1: expensive state Supreme Court race in the history of America. That is hard to believe, especially because in Wisconsin, our primary and general are so close
4: together. We're about to get bombarded, aren't we? I think we are, and it's because it's also attracting national attention. You see the New York Times, Washington Post, talking about this. Keep in mind, no matter what happens on April 4th, the ideological shift of the court, or the ideological position of the court will shift. Because right now, with the retirement of uh, Justice Rogensack, it is 3-3. Whoever wins could prove to which way the court leans. And because of that... So many issues uh, that you can think of that could end up before the state Supreme Court. That's why both sides are engaged and ready to battle, because they want to make sure their side will help them on these big court issues that the next state Supreme Court will have to face.
1: He is Charles Benson, TMJ4 chief political reporter. Always great to catch up, Charles. Thank you so much for your perspective. You're welcome. Wisconsin's Afternoon News on WTMJ. Meteorologist Brian Nesnansky is with us. Hello, Niz. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, before Uh, we get to some totals about yesterday's storm and all that good stuff, uh, we want to ask you a question about the sleet and stuff that was piled up on that ramp in Bayshore. You know, none of us know exactly what role it played, but if it was piled there, do you have a way to measure how heavy that would have been or give us some perspective on that?
5: Absolutely. Great question. I mean, obviously, we don't know necessarily how big the pile was or how heavy it was. Sure, you could measure and do like square footage of how, you know, big the parking ramp was, but there's really no telling as far as like how much melted. Maybe some of it was actually plowed down to the next level. You don't know. But what we do know is that the precipitation was primarily sleet in the Glendale area. And sleet is significantly heavier than snow. Okay. A standard snow is a 10 to 1 ratio. Um, 10 inches of snow equals 1 inch of water. And then when you talk about the weight of water, uh, that equates to, uh, roughly 4, uh, 4 pounds per cubic foot. Now, multiply that, or excuse me, six pounds, my bad, Mm -hmm. six pounds. Now, sleet has a ratio of just over two-to-one ratio, and then with the weight of water, that equates to over 20 pounds. So what I'm summing up is, is that sleet weighs four times more than standard snow so if you pile that all up maybe the plow driver's thinking ah this pile i've had a pile this big before yeah uh, he wasn't factoring in potentially how much that weighed
1: oh my goodness
5: uh, i heard a rumor that uh you may have broken a shovel and almost
1: broken a snow blower yesterday <laughs> i did i definitely broke a shovel
5: um, <laughs> not in anger just because yeah. of the weight of the of the yeah. sleep and snow right Yeah, totally. I was doing it. You ever, you ever, you know, when you get through the plow stuff, I had the snowblower going with the plow stuff, but then you, like, maybe want to, like, clean it up a little bit where you kind of hack down the pile that you made to, like, make sure you get the full width of your driveway? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was doing that part. I was doing that part, and I picked up some stuff and snap, that was it. Uh, But, I mean, I'm sure everybody, you know... Everybody kind of dealing with the same stuff, especially the northern spots. I mean, like, Plymouth got up to a foot of snow. Uh, That was at least pure snow, but it was a wetter snow. Grafton still had quite a bit of sleet mixing in. That's where I live. And I measured about six to seven inches in Grafton. Um, It was super heavy. Mm. Really, really tough to move. Greg lost a wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally and <Literally. laughs> figuratively, no surprise there. Yeah. Uh, on the south end, yeah, <laughs> uh, on the south end of the uh, system. Obviously, we dealt with the ice storm, and I was asking the National Weather Service. We've been digging through some files here as well. Uh, historically, we don't see ice storms here in southern Wisconsin. The lake plays a big role in that. You get a strong east wind, which a lot of these stronger systems are going to produce. It's going to get enough warm air aloft that it will basically crush any chance of freezing rain. Uh, but it, it did pan out yesterday. Um, now, going back in the record books, there have been some very minor events recently. I think the last one was uh, 2009. Uh, there was one, uh, 2008, 2007. Um, but neither one of those really amounted to much more than a quarter inch of ice, if that. And then there was one in 97, uh, close to it. Now, I'm not 100% on this, but mm-hmm. there's a chance that this was the biggest ice storm for southern Wisconsin, which we've had some three-quarters-inch of of freezing rain amounts uh, since 1976. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, 1976 was the whopper of them all. This was one of the biggest natural disasters of Wisconsin history. We had a three-quarter-inch freezing rain amount yesterday. There were some spots reporting five inches of freezing rain in 1976. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah, so another perspective. (laughs) At one point, we had over 40,000 people without customers without power uh yesterday evening last night uh 1976 there were 600,000
3: oh my. customers
5: without without power that's um, crazy it was a that's entire was city. Like, yes next level i mean it was a wow. next level ice event it would be huge for any part of the country it was astronomically huge for us here in southeastern wisconsin it doesn't compare but this could be the next big one which gives yeah. you An idea of how big
1: 76 Holy cow. A good perspective. Quickly give us the uh, next five days, Nez.
5: Yeah, 100%. As we head into tonight, a few flurries. 12 degrees for a low in Milwaukee. Getting cold, guys. So shovel up any slop you have on the sidewalks now. It's probably almost too late. We're dipping below freezing. Uh, Four inland. For Friday, partly cloudy, colder. High of only 24. Saturday, we start warming back up. Mostly sunny, 35. Sunday, mostly sunny, mild, 41. And Monday, Rainy and windy, a high of forty six degrees on Monday, guys. All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow, Niz. Thank you. Yep, see you guys later. Bucks I love my Milwaukee Bucks.
1: Bucks Insiders, Dave Kane is the play by play guy for the Milwaukee Bucks. Greg and I had the chance to catch up with Dave earlier today. How'd you spend the all star break? Did you get some time with your family? Did you recharge? How'd you spend the few days?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, I got a chance, so we we are half-time, uh, well, I shouldn't say half-time, most of the time I'm in Milwaukee, but we are also in Charlottesville still, which is where I was prior to, to taking the position with the Bucks. So I was able to get back to Charlottesville, spend some time with the wife, and see some friends. I actually went to my first Virginia basketball game as a fan, which was uh, a different experience. So I got a chance to sit there, almost same seat I had. They hooked me up with some pretty good seats, so that was fun. But uh <laughs> Yeah, so it, it was good though. I got got a chance to get on my mountain bike, and that's always something I like to do—find a little elevation and, and and you know spin around a little bit. But it was good. But I'm looking forward to getting back and getting into the stretch run here, and and uh, seeing how the the old bucks can fare here down the stretch when it really starts to to matter most.
3: Yeah, I feel like now is when everybody wakes up, right? And I don't mean that you know it casually. It just feels like you, now you start to dial in because. The All Star break is way beyond the halfway point of the season. Roster complexions have changed. Like this is the time you really sink your teeth into it.
0: Yeah, and it's right after the trade deadline too, so you get to see how some of the new you know pieces all gel together. And that's still new to me too, candidly. You know, in year two with the Bucks, you're coming from the college space where you began the season. You kind of dance with who brung you, but you get to the NBA all of a sudden. You got new faces there, and then you've got to try to see how that gels together, and then you know, you're always rolling the dice with the health thing. And I'm sure we'll talk about that with Giannis, but uh, not just Giannis, this whole team, we've seen it all year, just trying to muddle things together. But and this is every time I say it, so I'm sure something's going to happen next you wait for that other shooter drop, but it does feel like you're getting very close to seeing that whole roster on the court together. I think we saw it for one quarter before Portis went down, uh, you know, and so anyway, we're getting there. So, but it, it, and that's what I really more than anything want to see. I just, I want to see teams at full strength going against teams at full strength, which was as good as the Celtics' win was a week or two ago. I would have loved to see those two teams at top capacity and see how they fare against each other. So, you know, it'll be fun to watch that stuff play out and then the playoff jockeying.
3: So I'm watching the Bulls game, right? And Giannis goes for a signature block, and he ends up crashing into the stanchion and his wrist sort of bends awkwardly, and he falls to the ground, and he's in pain, he ends up leaving the game. Dave, I don't know what it is. Every time I see Giannis go down, I'm holding my breath. And it always looks worse than it ends up being. I I think about the the knee hyperextension in the playoffs a couple years ago. Man, I thought he was done. I see the wrist and think, oh, no, are you kidding me? It always looks bad, and it's always better than it ends up looking.
0: Well, it's one of the reasons you always want to try to be sure that you're drafting X-Men when you're uh, going to the track because he, he is like Wolverine. I mean, I, I, it is, it's is—it's amazing. I mean, it, Gumby or Wolverine, I don't know. You pick your character, but it, it's his ability and penchant to withstand punishment physically is one of the many freakish things about him. I mean, it's the most aptly named athlete in sports as far as I'm concerned, but I'm, I'm with you. You know, you see him go down, you cringe. How many times have we heard that incredibly terrifying hush descend over a forum? Of course, that was in Chicago where he hurt his wrist, but the game before he went down with, we banged his knee, and you're sitting here going, oh boy, now what? And, you know, knock on wood, he, he typically finds ways to get back up, so when he does leave a game, you know, in that case, he actually went to the locker and you're sitting here thinking, oh, is this the one? But, no, it, you know, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. There's so many amazing things about what that guy does, but his durability has got to be front and center, especially when you consider the way he plays and the way teams play him. I mean, it is full throttle. Every game he steps onto the court, it's one of the things that makes him amazing, um, but also amazing is the fact that he can withstand it.
3: He's a lot like Mercure that way. Man, I've seen that guy go down, and he just pops right back up, and I feel like, man, his kneecap was just going to shoot across the studio. Usually not, in the studio that he's, happens, He's yeah. usually okay, though. Yeah,
0: and I don't even want to ask what topples what him, but um, we actually I made the, the, the analogy that it's like, I don't know if you guys, and this is me dating myself, I did it on the air a, a few weeks ago, but it's like the wobble weevil, the weevil wobble whatever Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you were a kid, you'd push it down, and it just kind of like keep yep. popping up. It's like a little weevil. So like, yep. Giannis has is, is sort of taken that appearance of a wobble weevil. Weevil wobble. I don't remember what order it was, but I remember. I was a young kid, and I, I, I was old enough to know what it is. So I'll start there and be happy. But, yeah, I mean, he just keeps bouncing up. I, mean, I don't know about Mercure, but it, it takes a lot to knock him down, too.
1: Yeah, it takes me longer to get up than it takes Giannis. But...
3: <laughs> Different centers of
1: gravity, though. That's for sure. Hey, I want to ask you, Dave, about uh, Myers Leonard. Myers Leonard says that the slur he made was the biggest mistake of his life. He's grateful for the Bucks to give him a second opportunity. He was emotional yesterday when talking about what this means to him. He's on a 10-day contract. Do you believe it's more likely he's still a member of the Bucs two weeks from now or less likely he's still a member of this roster two weeks from now?
0: Man, I'll tell you, without having spoken to any of those folks, I've been removed from it. I'll just say from previous experience, again, a limited experience in the NBA, those 10-day deals typically don't stretch very long, I think especially given just what I'm looking at from the outside here because I am a little bit on the outside, not having been around the team in the last week since this all went down. But, I, you know, with, with what's going on with Giannis right now, i, I got to think you're looking for some depth in the here and now. You don't know how long Giannis is going to be out. We didn't know what Bobby Portis's return was going to be like. Um, even Pat Connaughton, So, you know, he missed some time. And then Chris Middleton. So there's some guys you're wondering what they're going to be able to do, even though, as I understand it, we're expecting to see Bobby, Chris, and Jay Crowder play come Friday night. But, uh, you know, so with that in mind, with 10 day guys, I often feel like it's more of a stopgap than anything else. But I don't know that I'm not speaking from a position of authority on, of authority on this. But, you know, to, to the extent of, you know, his background and what his previous transgressions were, I, You know, I I haven't had a chance to meet him and speak with him, but I'm I'm a believer people deserve second chances in this country, you know, and especially when you're, let's just call it what you are. Sometimes you're young and dumb, and you don't understand the gravity of the things that you're saying, and it sounds like perhaps that was the case for him, but again, I'm certainly not an expert in the field, and, and I don't have a ton of information around it, but... Um, you know whether he's here in, in, in eleven days is probably is, is really anyone's guess. But if I if I was going to guess, I'd say you know most ten guy, ten day guys don't usually stick around for too many deals unless there's an imminent need. And I don't necessarily see hopefully an imminent need for the Bucks because they've got a, an extremely d- deep roster right now.
3: You know, in, in purely from a, a transactional standpoint, Dave, the Bucks had to make a move, right? I mean, after acquiring Crowder, the buyout market starts to you know, sizzle a little bit, and you're sort of waiting for teams to do their own thing. The Bucks really didn't have a choice. I mean, they had to make some sort of move to add to the roster after they traded away yeah. a handful of players.
0: And that's a good point, too, because you have to meet that minimum threshold of a X number of players on the roster. And then at some point, you know, you think about the fact of whether you want to go out of, out of house or could you go in-house and, and change one of the two-way contracts for A.J. Green or, Mamu and, and say, do we want these guys to be on our potential playoff roster? Because you could elevate their contracts and, and make it a standard contract. So, you know, they've got some different things to, to play around with. And then you're also waiting to see who else pops. You know, if there's other guys that make sense to join your team, I, I think that both the, the Bucs and the Celtics are in a unique position because there just isn't a ton of playing time. So in a normal buyout market, you're saying, all right, well, we got a chance to add someone of the substance. But if you try to add someone of the substance, they're going to want to play. And there's just not a whole lot in the way of playing time for these, for, for, for
1: the Bucks. So, you know, I think that limits what you're able to do if you're, if you're looking to go outside of your own house in that regard.